Hey everyone, just a quick note before we begin this week's episode that the Plains of Fame Air Museum in Chino, California is holding its annual Namesake Air Show Saturday and Sunday, May 4th and 5th, 2019. Aerial performances include the U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper demo team and over 50 historic aircraft such as the P-47 Thunderbolt, P-38 Lightning, P-51 Mustang, and many more. Admission for children 11 and under is free, and tickets are available for advanced purchase on their website, planesoffame.org. So if you live in Southern California or will be visiting the region on May 4th and 5th, 2019, well, grab the kids and head over to the Plains of Fame Air Show in Chino. Gates open at 8 a.m. Everyone knows the star of the hit movie Top Gun was the F-14. But do you know which Western fighter starred across from the Tomcat as its nemesis? This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, retired U.S. Navy Reserve Commander Paco Kirichi, mastermind of the naval aviation-themed documentary Speed and Angels, joins us to discuss that aircraft, including the time he was nearly killed in one. So I was going off into the gravel, and I shut the engines down. And right as I was about to slide off, uh, I got a little left side slip. The left main mount dug in. The plane kind of heaved up on its side, paused for a second, and then flipped over. And then the canopy glass shattered, and I was upside down with this plexiglass dagger in my neck. Let's look at this car. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots, Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. Sunshine, welcome back. What's up, dude? Thanks, Jello. Whole lot of nothing. How about you? Oh man, life is good. Just still same old, same old. But man, what about episode forty-two of the F fourteen? That thing rocked it, dude. Epic, venerable F fourteen, and uh, quite impressed with the uh, fan responses we got. Fan responses were fantastic, actually, and the feedback that I received was they loved the four-way discussion with the bantering. They loved the audio, and that's thanks to our friends here at a local studio. And they loved a lot of the like big pen lid tricks and workarounds. And so we're going to take all that on board. And I think we need to make our future interviews more like that. That's a great idea. Cool. Well, I think everyone just loves the F-14 anyway. And this week on episode 43, we have the F-14's nemesis, at least in the movie Top Gun, and that is the F-5. And we will get to that interview with our guest Paco in just a little bit. But as always, some announcements and listener questions. What do you think? Sounds like a plan. Okay, cool. Well, let's see. First up is Patreon. We've had a very busy week. We have new division leads, John Clark, David Penny, and a person who, instead of being recognized, would like to donate this in honor of a McDonnell Douglas engineer, Mr. Mike Watkins. We also have Patreon strike leads, Eric Brinkman, Chris Delwo, and Stephen, or Stefan, maybe, Coat. 
And then we have a new Patreon Airboss and Sunshine. If you recall, the Airboss, that's like the kingpin. There's only so many of those. Absolutely. And that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of help. And that is Joshua P. Walden. And by the way, Joshua is also an extreme model builder. And we'll talk more about that in the future. But he might just be building a model for the show that we could possibly raffle off or give away later. Oh, is there any way we could show some photos of progress? Ooh. Good idea. Well, we have some photos on there. In fact, he's going to customize it, Sunshine. There might be our names on it, you and me. And depending on who talks to him last, I suppose we'll put the name either on the front seat or the back seat. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's two S's Uh, in Sunshine, fellas. (laughs) Ah, very good. Yeah, that's right. Nice. Thank you very much, gents. And thank you, Joshua. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, let's get into the listener questions. You want to take this first one? Yeah, you betcha. So, uh, Patreon division lead Peter Lee asks, why is having a college degree a hard requirement to become an officer in the armed forces in order to start down the path of becoming a fighter pilot? Isn't there some other means of evaluating a person's educational aptitude? I only have my high school diploma with some college coursework completed, and I have gone on to have a pretty successful career working for a Fortune 500 company. I have to wonder how many candidates would potentially qualify to become a pilot if the college degree requirement was recommended as opposed to being required. Do you want to take that, Jello? Yeah, that's a good one. I, you know, I think of this as kind of a self-screening process. In other words, if you want military officers to have a certain level of education, number one, but also a certain level of drive, well then those who can make it through a four-year degree and earn a college degree are the ones that you're going to choose from because they have proven that they can do it, and as such then have met arguably an arbitrary requirement, but at least it distinguishes them from the rest. But also, I don't know about you, Sunshine, of course you went to the boat school, but for me, I did a lot of growing up at college. I learned a lot of things, not just the different courses and the work in those courses, but I learned a lot about myself and dealing with others and being organized. And so I just think it's a very obvious, logical requirement, and it helps kind of screen those out who are willing to do it versus those who aren't. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Joe. It seems like historically the kind of our culture here in America has thought of a college degree as being a signal of both kind of strong critical thinking as well as communication skills, kind of the polished stuff that you need for upper level management. But uh, you know what? Honestly, there was a recent Brookings Institute study that shows that college is uh, so accessible nowadays that it doesn't really as good of an indicator as it used to be. So Take it for what it's worth, but that's still one of the hard and fast requirements for being an officer. Yeah, I agree with that because I know plenty of people, including my brothers, who, like Peter, don't have actual four-year degrees but are still very successful. So I'm certainly not going to say you're not going to be successful without the degree. But for something as large as the military, again, I just think it makes it very simple to say, hey, this is just a requirement to perform at this level. And oh, by the way, the airlines do the same thing for airline pilots. And so it just to me, seems logical. So, awesome. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Joe and Sunshine. Uh, greetings from Blighty. This is uh, Jim Hearson. Uh, just saying I love the show. It really uses my commute and the content is really spot on. So I've got some random scattering of questions that I'd like to just run by you today, if that's okay. Um, first one up, ACM. Uh, did you two guys ever duke it out? And if so, who came out on top? And if you never did, then who would? So I don't know if you want to put a whole episode to one side just to discuss that one. Uh, second one on the, uh, I understand you've got the Blue Angels 
or a representative of the Blue Angels joining the show, hopefully shortly. Uh, I've read somewhere that they uh, have some quite extreme trim bias settings. I'm not sure which axis, but interested to know the uh, rationale behind that and what and whether that translates into uh, any operational considerations out in the fleet. Um, Negative G, what is the limiting factor? Is it the pink squishy body in the seat or is it the airframe? Uh, One for Sunshine, Uh, aircraft design, if ever you get onto the F4, interested to know um, we've got dihedral wingtips and anhedral stabilators, so quite interested to have an explanation on that. And finally, um, endurance, uh, what is the limiting, limiting factor? Is it the actual uh, uh, pilot's butt on the uh, hard ejection seat, or is it pedal packs, or is it uh, oxygen, or what have you? Uh, but interested to know um, the answers to that. Oh, and finally, footnote, the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team, the Red Arrows, are visiting North America this year, so if they're apparently you check them out, they fly the Union Jack with a lot of pride and precision. Anyway, uh, love the show. Uh, look forward to hearing uh, some responses hopefully soon. Okay, take care. Thanks. Bye. All right, Jim, several parts on that one there, Sunshine. Let's see. First, he wants to know if we ever dog fought, I guess would be the word. Is, is that now, the past tense? Yeah, dog fought. I guess. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Dog now, fighted? No. We, we didn't know each other before we ended up at our what turned out to be Twilight Jobs in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And in that job, we never actually even flew formation, let alone fought off each other. I didn't fly formation with anyone for the last two years of my career. No, we really didn't. But Jello, how was your neck during your depot tour? Uh, it didn't feel too bad, except that I was just continuing to age anyway. But <laughs> Okay, you, know, and you, you probably would have won, to be honest with you. <laughs> lose, well, fight, I, lose the fight. <laughs> I me. did win because there was one flight that we had, and I just threw a video of this on Instagram recently, where I was in the back seat. So I was at your 6 o'clock the whole time, dude. You were getting, <laughs> you were getting gunned. You were inside of my control zone, dude. <laughs> uh, disturbing, but yeah, who knows? I mean, when we were younger, I'm sure it would have been a very even match. But anyway, uh, that's a good one. Well, yeah, hats off. I defer to you, Jello, in that you're the Top Gun grad, so I think you would have beaten me. And as the TPS grad, I could have built a one heck of a PowerPoint presentation explaining exactly why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I was never all that good anyway. But anyway, <laughs> hey, with this second question there with the Blue yeah. Angels, you, and not to give too much away about the show, but right. you might have some recent exposure to this one. So why don't you take that part? Yeah, so I got to hang out with a good buddy of mine who's a former Blue Angels skipper, and he uh-huh. mentioned, he talked to me about the artificial feel spring. So that spring is going to be a, an aftermarket, if you will, attachment to the stick, and it's got four positions, so it provides additional tension that it goes anywhere from roughly about five pounds up to about 30 pounds. And that, that additional tension is going to be huge when it takes out – it's going to take out the free play of the stick, so it's uh, – allows for very minute or minor muscular control of the stick, which is going to be huge when you got that real close 18-inch formation. Right. So in other words, when they're flying together very closely, instead of the stick, which is kind of squishy, if you'll excuse the term. Yeah, it is. Now yeah, right, a little bit. I mean, relatively. But yeah. now they've got the stick pressure, and as they're holding that off, and I've heard they really have to ice down afterwards, but in holding it off, it creates that tension, and they can be very precise with the stick. That's pretty cool. All right, well, we'll talk more about that when he uh, comes up on a future episode, right? Sounds good. Yeah, I think the blues actually call them like squeeze corrections, but absolutely. Oh, cool. All right. And then the negative G, I just think of this as, well, first off, in an aircraft not designed to fly at long term in negative G, you have 
oil and other fluid limits. You don't want to have air get in the system. And then as far as the body goes, certainly we talked in episode six about pulling negative Gs or pushing, I suppose. And and if you do too many, it can be damaging to your eyes and your brain. But I think, can't you virtually hang upside down at negative one G for indefinite period of time? I think so, Joe. Yeah. But for me, the limiting factor is just like you said, going to be the capillaries probably in the eyeballs. That's the most painful. See, I can always count on you to bring out the technical term. I just sit here <laughs> talking vagaries. Anyway. All right. Now, what about the F4? Let's see. I think we talked about this recently, uh, didn't we? Yes, we did. So, um, Jim, if you get a chance to go to YouTube, look up the video. It's our first, our inaugural deep dive. We're going to talk about the dihedral effect. And that's going to ah. be evident. Yeah, that's evident both on the empennage of the F4 with the, the control surfaces back there and also on the wing tips itself. So that dihedral effect is going to lend itself to a lot of positive lateral static stability. And I'll just leave it to Jim. Why don't you go to YouTube? Well, to be fair, I believe he submitted this question before we did our first deep dive. We are a little backed up on listener questions, but we're trying to work through them. And finally, he asked about the red arrows coming to the States. I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if I'll be able to make it, but if I can, I sure look forward to seeing them. Yeah, likewise. I'm excited. I've never seen them in person. Cool. And I believe they fly the Hawk. Indeed, they do. All right. Sunshine, you want to take this last one? You bet. So from Mark Milligan, Mark asks, what is the entry level pay for an aviator and how much does it ramp up? I assume there are some perks with this in that housing allowances and benefits are not deducted or taxed like we all have to deal with in the commercial world. Jello, what do you think? Yeah, good question, Mark. Well, I think that you have public pay charts, and we can leave a link to them in the show notes if you'd like, that talk about your rank versus your number of years of service. And the higher you climb in both categories, the more your pay increases. But I think right now for an 01, which is an ensign just starting off in flight school for less than two years in service, I believe it's about $3,100 a month in base pay. And that is what you're taxed on. Now you get allowances for food and for housing, and those are not taxed. And then of course, you have special privileges like virtually free medical, you have very low cost life insurance, and of course, privileges at the exchange and commissary, which are like a department store and a grocery store. And at some point, Sunshine, they start giving you flight pay. I think it's when, what, you check into your first training squadron that actually has flying involved, not just the academics. And that ramps up over time because what they want to do is incentivize you to stick around and make a career out of this. And then believe it or not, it starts ramping down just <laughs> after you've gotten used to it for most of your career. And it starts going away. And by the time I retired, it had almost gone completely away. So I was getting effectively a pay cut every year. But yeah, I don't think most people join for the money. I think they join for the fun. I don't know. What do you got to add there? Uh, yeah, so Joe, you're spot on, obviously. And 01, under two years, gets around 3100 a month. And then the BAH, that basic allowance for housing, is going to be geographically specific. So for San Diego, it's 2400 Flight pay initially is 150 A little food money in there. And you get about 5700 a month, which turns out to be about 69000 a year. And then, as you said, it, it creeps up. And that fly pay actually kind of uh, peaks, if you will, at $1,000 a month. And then you and I, as we retired, it was down to 700 and it eventually dwindles to 450 a month. Yes, that's right. Okay. So on that 69-ish, I forget what you said already, 1,000 yeah, though, they're, mm -hmm. they're only being taxed on maybe 40 of that effectively because some of those allowances are not taxed, like you said. Yeah. And then you said geographic. So if someone lives somewhere less costly than San Diego, let's say Oklahoma City, then they're going to get less for their housing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's basically, I believe that it's based on the average rent for an area. Okay. 
And then I think there's also some effects on your allowances, whether you are married or have dependents or not, et cetera. So anyway, good question, Mark. Well, Sunshine, I think we better probably get to the interview. We've got, I think, a slightly longer interview than normal, maybe not compared to the F-14, but you had a chance to listen. Uh, any lead-in thoughts before we get to Paco? It's just cool to finally hear Paco, and uh, I didn't realize that uh, the movie that he helped to create. So bravo and Paco, and I say we just uh, start the interview. Sounds like a plan. Let's get to it. All right, today the Fighter Pilot Podcast is in Los Angeles, California, and we are talking the Northrop F-5 with retired United States Navy Reserve Commander Paco Curici. Paco, welcome to the show, buddy. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, we are going to hear about the F-5, but first let's hear about you. Where are you from? What have you done, and what are you doing now? I am from the East Coast. I moved around a little bit, but went to high school in Rochester, New York. Okay. And then uh, went to Boston University on the ROTC scholarship. And uh, out of there, I uh, got accepted into the flight program in the late 80s. It was a great, okay. time, great time to be alive, fog right. and beer, and, yep. uh, and go fly jets. Right after Top Gun. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, went down to flight school, uh, managed to go to Corpus Christi, Kingsville for intermediate and advanced, and then selected for A6s, flew A6s for a few years until my squadron got decommissioned and then uh, transitioned over to the F-14 and flew that uh, for another few years. Um, and at that point, I had 10 years in the Navy, and it was time to kind of make a decision. So uh, for family reasons, got out and uh, thought I'd never fly again, hmm. uh, at least uh, not fighters. Okay. And uh, a friend of mine that I was in T-13 with uh, called me up and said, hey, VFC-13 is taking applications to go fly, you know, the F-5 as sure. a reservist. And I could not put my package together fast enough. <laughs> it had been nine months. Uh, my uh, hands were shaking. I was right. cold sweats. And so I did that. I flew F-5s for uh, another 10 years, and it was spectacular. I mean, I just had the best time up there. So Okay. And I uh, retired out of Fallon as a reservist. I didn't have to live in Fallon, but uh, I went there at least four to seven days a month for 10 years. Okay, which means you spent a lot of time in the officer's club. Yeah, yeah, that's where I... <laughs> All right, and so you hung that up at some point. What have you been doing parallel to that since? Uh, when I got out of active duty, I got hired by the airlines, and I've been uh, an airline pilot for 22 years now, a long wow. time. It's it's hard to say because I don't feel that old, but... No, well, you don't look that old either. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's good, man. So you're sitting left seat and flying good routes, I hope, and uh, you're living the dream. Yeah. Well, so... In addition to the story you're about to tell us about Top Gun, you had a little dipping of your toe in Hollywood anyway, didn't you? Aren't you responsible or at least involved with a certain movie I bet the listener is familiar with? I am. Or documentary, I guess. Yeah. So I uh, created and produced Speed and Angels, which is a naval aviation documentary. Mm -hmm. And I did that concurrent with my last few years as a reservist. Could kind of see the end coming and... You know, just wanted to tell that story. I think much like yourself, you know, it's like yeah. this incredible world that we're super proud of. And um, it's difficult for outsiders to know what we really do and how really cool and fantastic and how great the people are and the flying. It's it's not like the movie Top Gun, which is just so full of cheese that, you know, it makes us actual aviators, uh, you know, makes yes. our skin crawl a little bit. We have sliced the cheese on this program many times, so you don't have to uh, belabor that, but yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I was really motivated to tell that story. And at the time, the easiest way for me to do it uh, was to uh, 
to make a movie. I actually tried to write a screenplay, or I did write a screenplay, uh, and tried to get it chopped around in Hollywood, as you say. And when that uh, was not successful, I, I decided to make the movie and went out and raised a bunch of money. And um, a friend of mine is a, a really fabulous director. She's um, a, a woman director in San Francisco, pretty much the opposite demographic of, of what you would think would be somebody interested in making a movie about sure. naval aviators. And <laughs> in fact, when I brought it up to her, she was like, ah, I don't know if this is for me. Uh, and I just convinced her to come out to Fallon with a camera and start filming, you know, just around the ready room, talking to some of the guys and, uh, you know, looking at the plains sure. and the desert. And, and she just, she was smitten. She fell in love with the, cool. with the story, you know? Yeah. So. All right. And so what happened, I guess we can go on a quick tangent here. What, so we mentioned face shot on episode two with Ferg, uh-huh. also of yeah, the yeah, yeah. 13 fame. And so what has happened to face shot and Megan since the filming? Are they still active? They are not. They're both out of the Navy. Oh. Um, On their own decisions, I hope? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't. Just the way you put that, I was worried suddenly. No, not all right. at all. Um, no, they both had great careers. Um, both of them ended up as rag instructors. Megan was a Super Hornet rag instructor out in uh, Virginia Beach. Okay. And uh, Jay was a, a Baby Hornet instructor down in, oh. um, in Miramar. Okay. And out of those tours, they, for separate reasons, uh, decided to get out. And well, We all do at some point. Yeah. Neither one of them is a pilot anymore, at least not professionally. Well, I know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. They both work in the business world. They're both very successful. Uh, I mean, I, I talk to them all the time. They're Good. both really, really great people. No, that's awesome, man. And, and you still have some stuff going on, but we'll wait and save that till the end of the interview here. Okay. But yeah, very cool. I know a lot of people have enjoyed Speed and Angels, and I only watched it recently, I'm afraid to admit, but... I enjoyed it as well, and it was very well done. So on Thanks. behalf of the listener, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Anyway, let's jump into the F5, and we are titling this episode the F5 Freedom Fighter slash Tiger Two because I think it will be our first aircraft that we're covering in our series here that has two different names depending on the particular variant. Right. And let's start off with what it was designed to do. Well, the F5 Freedom Fighter, the A and B, mm-hmm. uh, were designed to be uh, light fighters, basically, that like the, uh, and they were designed initially to be sold to foreign military. Yeah, so that's kind of a new one for us, because it wasn't so much that we designed it for use, but we designed it to sell. Right. Right, okay. Yeah, and um, it was it was part of a program to, uh, to get uh, fighters into the hands of our allies that couldn't afford, you know, the F-4s at the time, mm-hmm. so... And then in that capacity, at some point, I think someone kind of forced it down, what, the Air Force's throat a little bit? Like, hey, you're going to use these things? Well, I think part of the problem was that the sales were lagging because it was an airplane that wasn't being used by the U.S. Air Forces. Uh Uh, And so foreign militaries were a little bit, you know, they were a little bit put off about buying something that was just, you know, they they thought it was a lower quality. So the U.S. Air Force ended up standing up a squadron, and then they sent it overseas uh, over to Vietnam. It was actually fairly successful, did really Mm -hmm. well. And that spurred the sales sure. of the airplane. And as the nomenclature suggests, it was intended to be a fighter, but I think in Vietnam it had some success as an air-to-surface platform as well. Yeah, I mean, I think much like the F-4, which was intended to be just right. a fighter, you know, once the necessity dictated that you strap some iron bombs on the bottom of an airplane and you have a perfectly good airplane, there then it, was yeah. <laughs> it, did, it ended up being a pretty good uh, uh, air-to-ground platform sure. as well. Okay. And I think at the time when they designed it, they had sort of day VMC type 
intercepts in mind. So not really an all-weather. No. Even for that era, and you flew the A6, so you know, of course. Yep. Um, all-weather, night, et cetera. This was more of a day, good-weather type aircraft. Absolutely, yeah. And when we flew it in Fallon, uh, the only thing I didn't like doing in the F5 was flying it at <laughs> night or IMC right. because it really was not designed for that. It was, right. it was a nightmare flying that. Well, and on that note, we know now what it was designed to do. What does it do well? And I guess in all of our discussion today, Paco, we need to think about its operational existence, but also really kind of how we used it and use it. Yep. Well, I think what it did really well um, is what it was actually designed to do. It was designed to be a a light, uh, inexpensive uh, air-to-air platform for countries that couldn't afford the the best of the best. And it, it was proliferated around the world, and we'll get to that later probably, but, you know, dozens and dozens of countries and hundreds of these airplanes uh, were built um, by license by other countries as well. It was really an effective air-to-air platform. Right. What we, the United States, ended up using it for is an adversary airplane, uh, and it simulates the MiG-21 almost perfectly. If you take the VN diagrams, and I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the VN diagrams. We've touched on those on the episodes, yeah. Okay, so if if you overlap, overlay the VN diagrams, they're incredibly similar. So, so the turn rate, turn radius, uh, speed, bleed, or addition, all those different things at a certain altitude, certain fuel weight exactly. are very comparable between right. the mix. Size, the size right. of the airplane. Yeah, yeah, true. So uh, it, it is an, it's a perfect simulator for the MiG-21. Uh, and with some uh, adaptability, some tactical adaptability, you can make it simulate some of the other uh, Soviet-era fighters, but actually the MiG-21 is, right. is perfect. Which was, for the longest time, the percentage threat for us here in the West. Exactly. Because it was a former, well, now we call it former Soviet Union, but it was Soviet Union aircraft that was proliferated to all the communist countries, and so we considered it the threat. And yep. in fact, the Top Gun patch has a MiG-21 in the center of it. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, they haven't updated that, and I don't know that they ever will. I hope not. I read that 2,600 of these were built. Let's rattle through the different variants. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> well, you got the, your notes handy? I've got yeah. mine here. So there's the uh, F5A and B, the Freedom Fighter. Right. And um, there's the E and F, which was the Tiger II. Any idea why they changed the name? I couldn't find any data on this. So To Tiger? Yeah. It was actually after that. It was named after that uh, Vietnam uh, program. So oh, okay. I, I can't remember exactly the nickname that the Vietnamese gave the airplane, but it somehow sounded or related to Tiger. Okay. Yeah. And then the most recent variant is the F5N, which was built by the Swiss and called something else. But once we uh, brought it over here to the U.S. for use as an adversary platform, we, we gave it the uh, November nomenclature. Okay. And then I read that there was an RF-5 such and such, I guess a reconnaissance variant, but you can slap a pot on just about anything these days. Right. So I think they changed the nose cone okay. of the plane. Oh, they and, did and, on that one? Yeah. Okay, not and, just a pot. and there weren't many of those built, maybe literally like a, a few dozen right. out of the hundreds and hundreds of, or thousands of, of F-5s that were right. built, just a few of them. And then arguably the F-20 Tiger Shark was a variant in a sense. Yep. Originally called the F-5 Golf. Right. And I actually, quick sea story, I actually saw Chuck Yeager fly this oh, you at a Ridgecrest air show, I should say China Lake, right. out in the desert. And I was too young to really know any better, but right. you know, here comes this airplane, it's going fast, and I'm young and impressionable, it's cool. Yeah. And someone said, oh, that's Chuck Yeager. And I was, okay, well, that's great. Who's that? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I had a chance to see that fly in the 80s out in uh, Ridgecrest. That was pretty cool. Well, Bob Hoover was the test pilot for the original F5. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Another, another big name oh, in, yeah. the, in the aviation in the history. Yeah. That's right. And then 
the T-38. Right. Isn't that arguably a variant as well? Uh, I guess. I mean, I think the T-38 came first. Okay. Uh, so the F-5 was adapted from the T-38 design. The Talon. Right used, I think, still in the Air Force, right? They haven't replaced it yet. Uh, I think the Air the... Force is, but I know NASA, for example, is still using it. We had a gentleman on the show who flies them as part of his, okay. when he's not going into space training. And and the U-2 guys still fly them as well. Yeah, yeah. And little known fact, it was sort of the, the basis design for the uh, Hornet. That's right. So Some of the features or technology was taken from the Northrop, F5 and T38, right. and turned into the YF17, which we have discussed on this show before. Excellent. And then the foreign variants, you know, they might put a letter in front of the F or a letter after the five. Right. But if Wikipedia is to be trusted, 35 countries at one time? Yeah, it's incredible. Including the former Soviet Union. Yeah, well, they got them, I think, from the <laughs> Vietnamese once. <laughs> well, so when we pulled out of Vietnam, we left, I think, about 100 or 80 or so. Yeah, well, they, then, we, they had been given to the South Vietnamese. Right. You know, when we left, we said, okay, here, take these F-5s and then, right. good luck. And then that, yes, and that didn't work <laughs> when the North invaded the South. Yeah. And so a handful of them found their way into the Soviet Union where they flew them for a while yep. and reverse engineered, as I understand. And then apparently it got too expensive to keep them flying, but... I guess fair is fair. I think we've probably done something similar. Yeah, I would imagine. Is my, is my guess, yeah. <laughs> Rumor right. has it. Yeah. And the uh, the Iranians, I think, is probably the most interesting oh, yeah. because they, obviously, they had some uh, from the pre-revolutionary when days. When we were friends. And when we mm-hmm. were friends, yep. uh, that including, uh, as well as the F-14, which they still fly. And the F-4. And the F-4, right. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, they are actually pr- not just maintaining their F-5s, but they're producing new airplanes that they're calling really? something totally different, but they're essentially F-5s. Right. Okay. So, wow, I did not know that part. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, what can you tell me? On this show, we sometimes say, why does it look the way it does? And, and this is, I think, a question I came up with. For example, I never knew until someone told me that the landing gear on an A-4, which I presume you flew in training. I did, yeah. Uh, was super tall because the A-4 was designed to carry a nuclear bomb. And at exactly, the time, yeah. the bombs were really big. And then the F-8 Crusader has the variable angle of incidence wing, and the F-14's got the swing wings. Is there anything particular about the F-5 that is dominant in the way it looks or was designed into it, at least that you're aware of? And I don't mean that to be insulting, but I don't <laughs> know of any features. And I did tell you what the question would be, so what did you find out? <laughs> <laughs> well... The best thing about the F-5 is that it looks fast no matter where it is. If it's parked on the ramp, it looks like it's going Mach 2. But probably a design feature more specific to what you're talking about is the uh, the Coke bottle design, as they call it. So I'm no aerospace engineer. I'm about to embarrass myself. But <laughs> it, it, the design itself allows the plane to go through the speed of sound easier. Huh. That's as far as I'm going to go with that. Well, I tell you what. So you and I are recording this. At some point in the future, Sunshine and I will digest this, and then he can comment afterwards on that. Because I'm, I'm excited did, to hear that. He did teach aerospace at the academy, and he was a test pilot grad as well. So yeah. we'll have him comment after the show in the uh, follow-on notes, if you will. Perfect. You know, to your point, though, about looking fast, I have two older brothers, and when we were kids in the 80s, when Top Gun came out and all that, we used to build models down in our room at night when we were supposed to be sleeping. We'd all squeeze into one room. And we loved the F5. We right. had built a couple models. We hung them with fishing line from the ceiling. And, yeah. and I posted an image of one recently on Instagram because we do something different every day. And my brother, out of the blue, who doesn't chime in too much, he's like, oh, man, I always love that. You know, it kind of brought us back to those days. So it does have a very 
interesting and fast looking design, which is why it was chosen for something we'll talk about when we get to the notoriety oh, yeah. in a little bit. Um, how about the armament that it carried? And then we can talk about what it carries, which isn't a whole lot anymore. Yeah. But uh, at one point, it carried a lot of different ordnance. Sure. Air to air, it basically carried the, the AIM-9. Sidewinder, right. And uh, two 20-millimeter cannons made by Colt Browning, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Single <laughs> barrel, right? So they're not... Single barrel. I'm sure... Like I never got to fire one, but I'm sure it oh, sounded yeah. really great. Oh, I'm sure. All right. You remember uh, how many rounds? I hate to put you on the spot. Uh, it was like 250 per. Okay. Oh, so per. That's not Yeah, bad. so not not a ton. Right. And I'm sure it was a pretty slow uh, rate of fire. Probably single for barrel. a single barrel, sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then a variety of uh, iron bombs, uh, rockets, uh, and uh, Mavericks, I think. Oh, did it? Okay. I think so. I know it had napalm. Saw yeah. a video of that. Well, yeah. And a- rockets, but nothing anything. real cosmic, I'm guessing, like laser-guided or walleyes or anything. You it's know, about in, as big in as reading walleye. through it, I, I saw that I think the Saudis put uh, a laser pod. So, okay. uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of detail, but if you're going to put a laser pod, you're probably going to put some sort of an LGB sure. package on that. Sure. But, yeah, mostly just iron bombs, anything that was, you know, gravity. Right. Uh, gravity and in Vietnam, bombs. that was mostly what it was. And then right. it, we've gotten away from that. Other countries, as to your point, have made various improvements to the model over yeah. the years and their own variants or built their own, as you stated. Yep. Okay. And, and then, they continue to do so. I mean, some of, yeah. the, some of the later improvements done on the airplane are pretty remarkable. Right. Um, and this thing's been flying, what, almost 50 years yeah. or more maybe? Uh, I think more. The F-5 itself, I, I think, started flying in 1970. Okay. And then the the, uh, the E was a little bit after that. Right. I can't remember the exact date. No, that date. makes sense. Yeah. All right, so we're coming up on its 50th anniversary and still flying here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Yeah. What does it carry today? Well, the way we use it here in the U.S. is uh, as an adversary. So it, it has what's called a CADM, uh, Captive Air Training Missile, I yep. think. That's yeah, what we've that I can... referred to that here on the show before. Okay, CADM-9. Uh, and then on the, uh, I think it's the left wing tip, it's got a tax pod. Right. And then a few of the airplanes will have jamming pods, mm-hmm. internal jamming pods, uh, which are pretty effective. And then a fuel tank. Not always. Not always? Yeah. So, I mean, Ideally, but it no, because right. it, it changes the performance right. pretty dramatically. Okay. And if you guys are going to detach somewhere, can you carry a baggage pod or anything? I never saw one. You never saw one? Okay. No. Yeah, right. it was just, there was a bunch of room in uh, in the turtle back. Right behind r- you. Right behind you, okay. but not. And then uh, a lot of the airplanes had um, the uh, the guts of the machine guns were taken out. Sure. Or the cannons were taken out, so you could slip a bunch of bags in oh, there cool. as well. So Bags, we'll put in air quotes. Uh, we, we had a guest on the show talking about in the good old days making runs for lobster and beer and other things. But. I heard that. I heard that episode, <laughs> and I did that as a stash ensign. Did you really? I was in uh, VF-43 oh, in Oceana as a stash, uh-huh. and we used to go up to Brunswick to pick up lobster every once in a while. There you go. Yeah. And just again, I don't know if we've used that term, a stash ensign, meaning you were looking for a job while you waited for your name to get called for to start flight school. Yeah, and there were right. lots of us back then. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was even a stash as a, as a student in 1992. Okay. And then I think the other term you threw out was tax pod. I think we've covered that before, but that's just the instrumentation pod mm-hmm. that we carry just like a CADM-9, and it beams back and forth information for the folks on the ground. Okay. Uh, let's see. How about performance? How high? How fast? How many Gs? 50,000 plus, although okay. I never went anywhere near that. All right. um, it was about a 1.5 fighter. I think I, I Mach saw... Mach 1.5? Mach 1.5, right. yeah. And I saw 1.4 pretty frequently. Okay. I don't think I ever saw 1.5. And it would pull... Let's see. The G limit was 7.33. 
but a little known fact was that the G counters in the belly didn't click over till 8.33. So there were some people who had a personal G limit of 8.1 oh, or 2. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and it, it liked to pull G, at least for the first, you know, 180 degrees of turn. Right. I've fought it several times, and I guess we'll get to this in a moment, but it's a capable little fighter, and yeah. it's difficult to keep track of, and that's visually, and that's that's one of the strengths of it, as we'll get to in a moment. Absolutely. Um, oh, in fact, that is next. So small size yep. is, a, is a strength. What are some other strengths of the F5? The speed, I think, is a significant yeah. factor. You know, if you're trying to bug out on an F5, you better really do a good job of it because it will chase you down. Sure. It has the capability of doing that, especially like a rhino, you know, that doesn't have a a huge ability to disengage and right. accelerate through the number. Especially if that Super Hornet is carrying a bunch of stores that are canted out and acting as drag. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there was a huge difference between fighting uh, against a rag Hornet or Rhino and a fleet uh, Hornet or Rhino. Yeah, I can imagine. The, you know, the first few uh, turns, as long as you kept your speed up, were, were pretty significant. You know, you could sustain, especially nose low, you could sustain a really nice uh, degrees per second. So mm -hmm. two-circle flow was pretty good. Once you got slow, then you're in trouble. So that was definitely a negative. Sounds like that's a design feature that carried over to the F-18. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing in that. Did you ever fly the F-18? No. Yes, you never did. Huh? I just got did shot you? by him all the uh, time. Well, sorry, I hope it wasn't me. <laughs> I'm sure um, it was. We, we talked about difficult to visually acquire for a, for a time before AESA came and cheated. Uh, everyone does now. Maybe even difficult to acquire with some radars, theoretically, because it yeah. was so small, small radar cross-section. Yeah, absolutely. And we had some tactics uh, in the squadron to, you know, try to get somebody to the merge. Right. Like red cell stuff and mm -hmm. some crossing and post hole, sure. you know, MCM 3-1, as we call it. Yep, which is a uh, Air Force document for some of the things we expect the threat to do. Or you guys would hide behind ridge lines out in Fallon, which we had large mountains that you guys could That's radar right. shadow yourselves behind. Or the one I always hated was uh, when you get back in the debrief and you're watching the tax replay, and lo and behold, the blue fighters, and you're one of them, are making your way out. And there's that wily little F5 following you the whole time. Yep. And that the fight's on, he's right there like one of your wingmen, and no one ever calls him. <laughs> That's right. What did we call that guy? Remember the name we called him? The no. wild card? Oh, the wild yes. card, right. And all we tried to do with that was test your visual lookout because if you're flying over enemy territory, you never know when someone might jump up behind you and That's start right. shooting you down. And inevitably, it was the F5 that was back there and probably got the most kills because no one ever saw him. Right. But we would always let the fighters continue because the point will be made when we get back when they see it, which I've seen plenty of times. And of course, you always had to tell the instructors who got used to seeing it not to call it out. Let the students uh, right. look, look for the wild card. All right. Now, so when weaknesses here, I think we talked about early on as a fighter operationally, some of the day limitations and the mm -hmm. radar and ordnance, et cetera. What would you say, though, for how we here, at least in the United States, employ it today? What are some weaknesses of it as an adversary? I think the radar is probably the biggest weakness. Uh, now, the radar meaning... The, the lack of a, okay. of a modern radar. Okay. Um, so, so your ability, let's say you and I are fighting, sorry, and your inability to detect me or at least have situational or to, awareness? Or even or, to spike you, to, okay. get, to, to throw a signal your way, right? I mean, right. If, if you're trying to simulate um, a real-world threat, you've got to be able to uh, emit a radar that's going to you know, force the fighters to react to it. Right. Um, so the F5, uh, I think they're starting to consider upgrading them now, but they still don't have an AISA radar. 
Um, they, they just have this uh, APG 68, I think it is. So it's is that the same one? I think the F 16 has that. So is that is it's it the not same? the F 16. Oh, then, radar, so. oh, maybe that's a 66. Ah, oh, boy, we'll have to yeah. we'll have to clean this up in the uh, post roll here. But, yeah. Okay. So it has some radar, but it's to got your a point, it's got a pul- basically it's got a pulse radar. Okay. And it's We're, a range of roughly 20 ish miles. Okay. So it's it's not really useful to simulate you know enemy radar tactics. We don't have uh, raw gear, although I think the F5Ns have some pretty good raw gear. I was getting out of the squadron right as we were starting to pick up some Ns. Uh, and when I was there, they still hadn't been coded correctly, so mm. we couldn't use raw tactics. Okay. Um, but th- I think that's important to have to be able to do is to have the bandit you know, utilize raw tactics so right. that the fighters know what the, their enemy aircraft is, go- is going to do when they when they lock them up. And let's expand on that, because I don't know that that's come up before. So I think the word raw, they've gotten away from, but I think it used to mean radar and homing warning or something like that, R-A-H-W. But at any rate, all we mean there is radar warning receivers. So your passive sensors on your aircraft saying that, hey, there is RF energy out there that's hitting me. And oh, by the way, using some behind doors with no windows technology, hey, I think it might be this kind of radar. So we can, in some sense get an idea of what's looking at us. Right. And, and it can discern between air to air and surface to air and a direction. Thank you. And so what you're saying here is if I am, again, in our earlier scenario, out operating against you, your ability when you and I get back to the debrief to tell me that, yes, I was spiked or not, and that's the word we use for having picked up that energy, means I can either... If you tell me you're spiked, then that is confirmation that I'm doing my job. Right. If you just can't tell me, it's a limitation on your platform, yep. and that's a bummer. So that is, in effect, a weakness on some of the F5s is your inability to tell me that in the debrief. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure that they haven't upgraded that. Right. Uh, I hope they have. I mean, I think it's a fairly significant. Okay. How about fuel? Would you call that a limitation? Uh, it depends. Right. Uh, you know, if you're just going out and doing a 1v1, you know, you have enough for... Uh, you know, three really good engagements, which is plenty mm-hmm. uh, in a training Yeah, you can't remember much past that. At exactly. Least. <laughs> I yeah. had a difficult time. Too many turns. <laughs> That's right. And if you throw a tank on, you can go out and do, you know, 1.5 air-to-air, you know, uh, big... Time. Yeah, right. exactly. Sorry, 1.5 hours. So, I, I mean, I think it does pretty well in that environment. It's not great at it. Uh, you know, we could even double cycle every once in a while, which means we would we would have two sets of fighters come out and the, and the airplane would actually be able to stay airborne long right. enough to be, uh, you know, a radar blip, uh, something for them to shoot at. Sure. It just so. meant you had to not use the gas pedal or in our case, the, your left hand quite as much. And exactly. if you did get to emerge and it was the exciting fun part finally, yeah. you had to really temper it because you could burn up that whole second wave of gas in yeah. a few turns if you're not careful. Yeah, that's right. right. I mean, when we were doing in-house 1v1s, we could easily be out of gas in 20 minutes. Oh, gosh. Just yeah. go up and do a quick, three quick engagements, come back in for the break, and wow. that's it. We're bingo fuel. Okay. How about other avionics? Uh, do you guys have now a recording system of some sort so you can... Nope. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Not even the old three-quarter inch we used to have in the early F-18s. No. Um, I'm guessing that's coming along. And I know there are some companies, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but there are some companies that also bought some foreign jets back, mm-hmm. and they are trying to upgrade them to almost like a fourth-generation standard. Yep. I just got a call from a good friend of mine oh, yeah? who is involved with that. He's going to go moonlight with them? 
I, you know, <laughs> that's what he called for. Oh, yeah. Uh, and right. he, he was giving me the sales pitch, oh. and it sounds amazing. It yeah. really does. I mean, it's it's kind of like what we were talking about with uh, some of the modern upgrades on right. the F5s. You know, you've, you throw in uh, Asa Radar, really nice uh, raw gear, whatever we call the, the newest nomenclature. Well, yeah, I didn't mean to call you out, but yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hellman mounted queuing system, mm-hmm. some sort of a off-bore site, high off-bore site, uh, CADM, and all of a sudden you've got a really, really capable airplane. Right. Uh, Which is still so. difficult to see. Yep. But the performance-wise, I don't know if they're doing anything to the engines, but it's still going to be kind of a Cat 3 type. For sure. Speed, G, energy, bleed, and addition, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. that's, that's correct. But it's relatively cheap to operate. And I don't mean cheap in a pejorative term, but it's affordable. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, a big factor, I think. You also don't want, uh, you know, Top Gun exists to train up the fleet to counter like the really high-end SC-27, MiG-29 type airplanes. Right. Uh, but like you were saying earlier, the percentage threat is still something a little bit less than that. Most countries don't have huge fleets of SC-27s. One of the things I really, really loved about the F-5 uh, as a, an adversary airplane is that if you lost to the F-5, you did something wrong. And there was a really, that was a great opportunity to learn. Right. You were supposed to beat that airplane. And you know, I think that's maybe more difficult if you're an adversary guy in an F-16. You're going to win maybe most of the time, right? Possibly, so, yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, or even in a Hornet. Um, so it was a perfect training platform for, you know, the percentage threat. And right. if you lost, you could put that big red square on the uh, on the whiteboard and <laughs> on say... The, on the dead fighter. On the dead right. fighter. Or, or at that decision point, you're like, all right, here is your BFM error. And it's right. very clear and it's very distinct. And, and you should learn from this. Don't don't ever do this again. Right. Uh, you lost sight or, you know, you reversed uh, in front of the, the bandit or something like that. It was it was easy to, to see where you made that one mistake that right. led to the... You know, and a quick tangent on that, because there are magazine articles to this effect, and we might at some point get a guest on here to talk about being an adversary pilot, but is there a certain element of your ego you have to put in check that if you died, that's actually good? Or do most adversary pilots accept that as part of their training? That, In other words, you don't want to go out and win every time, because if you do, that means the real fighters that are protecting you when you're asleep at night aren't doing their jobs. So is there an element of conflict for you that while you want to win, it's better if you lose? Or has this ever come up? Absolutely. I think it goes back to my point earlier is that you could kind of fight the F5 as hard as you wanted and you still should lose, right? Right. Um, And if you, I think you would do a disservice to the student if you just let them win against an F5. Right. So you could, you know, you could be fighting that plane as hard as you could, and you should still lose to a Hornet. Right. And if you didn't, then you had that great point to make. Right. You didn't want to win, necessarily. You didn't cheer your your victories. Um, right. But it was it was really nice to be able to say, all right, here's what happened. Here's where, here's where you made a mistake. You should learn from that. And uh, usually, like if you took a, a RAG student out on a 1v1 grad hop, um, you would get three engagements, usually. And they might lose on the first one and the second one they might be neutral and by the third one they they had it figured out and they were cool. you know if not gunning you they were getting a good amram shot on you or right. something like that yeah and that is what makes adversary pilots professional pilots because they know what they're there for and they can bring out the salient points in the debrief yeah. and if they die they can feel okay about that because that's kind of their lot in life in a sense yeah absolutely so, okay cool 
All right, moving on. Where would the listener have seen the F5, or what is it notorious for, <laughs> if anything? Yeah, it was <laughs> absolutely. It was the MiG-28 in Top Gun. There you go. Painted all black and, and nefarious looking. Um, yeah, so the, the F5 <laughs> cruised around as a MiG for for the movie and in, in history now. Yes. Well, and so they had, I understand, based on an article you sent me that we should really link to in the notes, because that was a really cool article. There was a lot of stuff in there I learned. But they painted, I believe, two F5E single seats right. and an F5F two-seater. And, of course, when Goose gives the guy the finger, that's a two-seater that they filmed. Right. And I, I guess there might have been some CGI in that. But at any rate, those were the MiG-28s. And so they had their notoriety as the, the bad guy. That's right. Okay. And other than that, I don't know of anywhere else it's really made any kind of I mean, it's not used in any demonstration teams that I'm aware of. I think the Swiss, the Swiss use it, oh, and, and the Iranians. Oh, yeah. I didn't know the Iranians did air shows. Yeah, to get over there and check that out. <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, only if they'll have me. All right. Well, that's yeah, that's cool. But it's not like the Snowbirds or something else where some of the foreign teams do choose to use their trainers, whereas we in the West seem to use our fighters. Right. But, okay. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think just about any listener is familiar with the movie, and so they would be familiar with the F5 from that. And that article you sent me, again, was interesting because at the time, Top Gun used multiple different aircraft, but when they decided between the A4 and the F5 to be the bad guy, mm -hmm. they decided the F5 looked a little more sinister, and so they used it for the movie bad guy, and then they used the A4 for the training bad guy, like right. Viper and Jester and all that. Yeah, in VFC 13, we always had one plane painted black. I think there still was when I left there back in 2015. Yeah. And I think it was the two-seater, actually. Yep. Cool. Yeah, it was, we called it Fight Central. Nice. It's the one that everybody saw. You know, and a good <laughs> friend of mine was the CEO at the time. I really kicked myself for not getting over and getting a backseat ride in it because I've flown in so many others. And just we never got around to it because it was available just about whenever. And so until right. until it became a crisis at the end and I tried to do it and he was busy or I was busy, never got it. But oh well. Is that Ferg? Uh, Ferg was there and then he turned over to Wayne Ottinger. Otter, oh, yeah. Otter. A good buddy of mine. Yeah, he's, he's uh, I think he's still flying it, actually, in a new capacity as leadership for the air wing or something. Oh, nice. Anyway. All right, buddy. Well, how about a good sea story involving the aircraft? How many hours did you end up in it? Just under a thousand. Just under a thousand. Yeah, okay. Like Anything harrowing like or exciting or fun? Yeah. Okay. I had a few things <laughs> <laughs> that you're willing to share. I should have caveated. Sure. Yeah. No. I. You know, as when you're uh, an adversary, you almost die probably once a year from somebody, you know, some student, uh, you know, turning right in front of you or something like that. Um, so, I have a bunch of stories like that, but. Uh, the big one for me was I had a I had a crash. I crashed an F five. Really? Yeah, and I rolled it and I almost cut my head off. <laughs> Did you stay in it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It, it's uh it's an interesting story. I was uh, coming back from across country on my way back to Fallon from Moffett Field, and at the time our leadership uh, really wanted us to do practice approaches to you know validate the the uh, point of the cross country. So I decided to go into Reno. Okay. So an instrument approach. Instrument approach right. in Arena, although it was a beautiful day, you know, Cavu day. Uh, I didn't know because I couldn't pick up Adis coming over the mountain. We only had one radio in this airplane. Oh, wow. So I couldn't pick up Adis coming over the mountains, and I turned on final, uh, and Tower told me that there were 30-knot crosswinds, uh, which at the time was below the, the NATOPS limit for the F-5. Did you create a limit? Sort of. Sorry, I'm, I'm derailing your story, but you can come back to that if you yeah, want. Yeah, <laughs> there was 
there was a, a sad mishap after mine, oh, which what, like right. a couple days afterwards, oh. actually in Fallon, oh, a gosh. Hornet guy, and that created the limit. But anyway, so I'm lined up on the long runway uh, in Reno, which I think is the it's the inboard runway. And the F5 lands hellaciously fast. It's like 180 knot approach speed, and you're about 165 or so over the fence, and you touch down um, a little bit slower than that. So I decided to bump up my knots just a little bit. Sure, safety margin. Safety margin. And uh, when I was about three miles out, uh, they asked me if I could sidestep over to the other runway, uh, the shorter runway, which is 9,000 feet, Okay. Um, because they had some airliners waiting to take off. Right. No big deal, 9,000 feet. You know, found's only 8,000 feet or one of the runways there. Right. And so I came in uh, at about 190-ish knots, started slowing down as I was uh, approaching, and, and uh, a 737 was taking off upwind of me on the other runway, and I felt this huge burble, started to sink, goose the power, and I floated down the runway for about 1,000 feet. Still not that big a deal, although I, you know, I probably should have gone around in well, retrospect. Well, the plan was to do a touch and go, right? No, because in Reno, you have to do a full stop. Oh, okay. You don't allow touch and goes on an All instrument right. approach, practice instrument approach. So I touched down, and I didn't know it because it was the upwind wing, but my tire blew as soon as I touched down, the left tire blew. I didn't feel it. Normally, if you, I don't know if you've ever had a blown tire, but you feel it right away, you know, just flopping away, and it just feels really weird. Mm. Uh, but I, I had no sense that anything was wrong with the airplane. And in the F-5, unlike most Navy airplanes, you aerobrake for a while. So you keep the nose up, and you just kind of let the, the aerodynamics of keeping the nose up and the right. drag there uh, slow the airplane down to about 100 knots, drop the nose down, and, uh, and then start putting the brakes on. Uh, well, when I put the nose down at about 4,500 feet remaining, I put my foot on the brakes, and my left foot went all the way to the floor. Uh, and <laughs> So the brake lines <laughs> the brake. were probably severed. It was gone. There was all nothing right. there. Uh, and I was too slow to take off again, Uh-oh. and there was no long field gear. I put, couldn't pull the chute because of the crosswind. I would have weather vaned into the, you know, the nose into the wind and rolled. Okay. Uh, and so, and this plane was an E. It wasn't an N, so there was no anti-skid. Oh, gosh. So I started putting, you know, the, as much pressure as I could on the right brake to start slowing down, and it quickly overheated and blew. And so now I'm skidding on two metal wheels <laughs> rolling. Not ideal. Not ideal. Uh, going down the runway, sort of very slowly, painfully slowing down. And uh, it was it was my birthday, and my wife was throwing a party for me. It just keeps getting better. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a great day. <laughs> uh, and I remember as I, you know, as I passed the last taxiway, I was doing about 30 knots, and I'm like, uh, I could probably do it. But, you know, the plane, like the... the uh, the wheels were sort of sliding around sure. a little bit. I was keeping it straight with the nose wheel steering, but it, it definitely wanted to skid around. And I, I figured if I tried to make that last taxiway, I'd, I'd start doing donuts. Mm-hmm. So I was going off, straight off into the gravel, and I shut the engines down, and I was so ticked off because I was thinking, man, I'm going to be late for my party. They're going to have to bring tires out from Fallon. It's going <laughs> to take hours. And right as I was about to slide off, uh, I got a little left side slip. The left main mount dug in. The plane kind of heaved up on its side, paused for a second, and then flipped over. And then the canopy glass shattered, and you know the uh, the canopy bow uh-huh. uh, comes down, obviously in front of you, and it shattered into like these Indiana Jones jagged pieces, razor sharp. It bent back, cut my neck, and stopped. And I was upside down with this 
plexiglass dagger in my neck. <laughs> Still got a scar. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, and oh, by the way, with engines winding down, yeah. And uh, but fuel and everything else, so this isn't where you want to be. No. Yeah, and uh, I was sitting there upside down. I didn't know it, but my uh, my comm cord had gotten disconnected. So when I transmitted, they couldn't hear me, but I could hear tower. And uh, you know, I was sitting there in shock for a moment. Sure. And then I started getting angry, and then tower goes, "Oh, by the way, Saint ninety nine, you're you're not on fire." And I'm. <laughs> It like snapped me back to reality. Like, holy cow, I better get the hell out of this airplane. But I couldn't. I couldn't get out. I was upside down. I, I tried to climb out, and uh, there just wasn't any space. So I was stuck in it for about, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Wow. What did they finally do? Have to, like, jack the thing up or something? No, they just had to cut that canopy bow. The, okay. the fire guys came out, you yeah. know, from their barbecue, whatever they were doing. And <laughs> Well, they don't want any excitement, but you provided them some. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. Okay. So obviously you rebounded from that both physically and flight status solely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, gosh, yeah. that is quite a sea story. Yeah, that's Dang, a good dude. one. Whatever happened to that airplane? It sat in our hangar for about six months, so I could look out the window. Mm-hmm. You know, the Be red reminded. window. Yeah, sure. every day. And uh, they finally uh, put it back together and gave it to the Marines. Okay. So it was. It flew again. <laughs> it flew again. All right, as did you. Yeah. Well, there's a happy ending. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a that's a great story. You did say the word ATIS. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. That's just the automated terminal information system. It's a frequency you can dial in, and you can hear what an airport's duty runway is, the weather conditions, and any notices they might want the airmen to know. Like the wind. Like the wind, <laughs> which sounds like you knew about, but you did your best. Dude, well, wow, that is crazy. Thankfully, you made it out of that okay and back to flying. And the aircraft did too. Uh, gosh, that is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah. It was a crazy day. How it was tall like are a 6'3. Yeah, so you probably filled up the cockpit pretty much anyway. Yeah. Well, you're lucky you turned out as well as it did. Absolutely. Was there I, th- a moment? I figured if I was going maybe one or two knots faster, that, that yeah. thing would have cut my carotid. Yikes. So it came pretty close. And, but by the time it kind of went up on its wing, you knew that you, you, were, you were out of the envelope for ejecting at that point. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah yes. and I didn't think I had to eject. Like the whole, right. it was it was the slowest speed mishap, you know, it just it took it felt like it took forever. You mm-hmm. know, I'm skidding down the runway on the main mounts, you know, cursing out and doing all this calculus about <laughs> time ejecting. compression gives you time to do all that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and then, you know, like I said, when I was going off, I was probably doing fifteen knots or so when I went straight off the end, which isn't that fast, yeah. and I was going pretty straight, so okay. I thought, oh, no big deal, until I was upside down with a, a plexiglass dagger okay. in my throat. And at that point, you'd probably been flying for a while, but you made it out of that without a new call sign too, huh? Well, I would say that that's the closest I ever came. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that thing sitting in the in the hangar <laughs> yeah. right below the ready room, there was just a limitless call sign derby oh, yes. well, for we six months. Well, we talked before on this show about a gentleman who did, unfortunately, something similar to that in an F-18 and didn't eject. And I think he was able to crawl out, but he ended up with a call sign, Sue, this, yeah. this side up. Oh, yeah. And, so, yes, <laughs> oh, they, uh, okay. and they painted his name on the jet later with a little arrow pointing nice. normal up. Of course. So, yeah, so you, you made it out, in a sense, unscathed, uh, in a sense. Anyway, all right, Paco, well, that is a great discussion on the F-5. Thanks very much. It's still flying, right? VFC-13 is going to fly this thing for a while? Absolutely. I think it'll fly forever. You okay. Know, Marines still a, fly it, I believe? The Marines fly it. There's two Navy squadrons, one in Key West and one in Fallon, and, okay. and the Navy's have one. Um, sorry, the Marines have one in Yuma. Okay. 
And then I think some foreign countries maybe, or are they pretty much washing their hands of it now? I think there's still some foreign countries. Uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier. There's some foreign countries that have fully upgraded the right. radar packages, the the uh, radar warning, the cool. uh, helmet-mounted queuing system. So there's right. there's all kinds of modern capabilities on an old airplane. Well, okay, so it's got a bright future. What about you? I mean, you've got a good gig going. What's the future hold for you? Yeah, well, much like with Speed and Angels, um, you know, I love telling the story of the Navy. Uh, and uh, I have got this uh, creative bent that, you know, I, I enjoy and, and can't really get rid of no matter how much I try. So I uh, finished my first novel, and hopefully it'll be one in a long series of novels uh, related to naval aviation with okay. the same character throughout. All right. Uh, it's called Lines of the Sky. I don't know if you want me to... <laughs> <laughs> you, you can you can promote it as much as you want. I can jump in though and say yeah, that go you ahead. did send me an advanced copy, which I read mm-hmm. and enjoyed. And to me, I read that before I watched Speed and Angels, and I wish I'd have done it in the other order because they seem somewhat related in the sense of it's a journey. Yep. There's the hero's challenge and the ups and the downs and the comic relief, all the things any good story needs. Right. And a lot like Kevin Miller's books, who I think you told me you've collaborated with yeah you have taken this world that you and i lived and told it with a story and to be fair stories need to be exciting so there are some latitudes that you've taken but it really does i think help tell the story of what we do and it does it in a plausible manner with some of the tensions that we still deal with today absolutely yeah so one of the things i really wanted to do is you know take 20 years of flying in the navy and Mm -hmm take some of those nuggets, those incredible stories, and, and wrap them up into this book. And almost everything that happens in this book, even the, the crazy things, mm-hmm. actually happen in real life. Right. Almost. Um, well, there's, there's a climax that I think the reader will understand probably hasn't... Well, even that is taken from an actual story. Really? A real story, yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't want to give too much away about the book, but <laughs> a good friend of mine was an S3 pilot, and he was conducting an exercise with what he thought was a U.S. Navy submarine. Turned out it was a Chinese submarine. Oh, wow. They got irritated and called in for fighter support, and they actually launched fighters uh, to, to come after, uh, you know, to, to protect their submarine. <laughs> right. Holy uh, and unlike my book, the, uh, you know, in the real world, it got diffused very quickly. Sure. But it was such a great story. I mean, I rem- he told me that it had to have been, you know, 20 years ago, and it just blew me away at the time. Like, holy Holy cow, this stuff, the, the tensions level are so high that, you know, poorly managed uh, circumstances can really lead to significant consequences. Well, that's probably as succinct and articulate way to put it as possible. Yeah. And this book, as most books, will be available on Amazon. What was the release date? I mean, you can pre-order it, but what, what day is it actually out? Sure. It's available for pre-order now, and it comes out uh, on April 12th. Of 2019. Of 2019, yes. Excellent. Well, we will put a link to the book in our show notes, as well as feature it on our shop page in the book section. And yes, I recommend it. If people liked Hoser's books, they'll like yours. I think it's right there in the same genre and same excitement level. And it sounds like you'll get back to work on another one, or maybe you already are working on it. I'm starting it, yeah. The new one's starting to buckle down and uh, lash myself to my desk for okay. number two. So many words per day or a couple pages or something. Yeah, something like lines. that. It's All fully right. it's fully outlined, which 
which is great, but it actually, you know, makes sure. me lazy because I feel like there's not that much pressure. <laughs> so I've just got to sit down and write it now. You need to give yourself a deadline, maybe. Uh, your your, uh, your editor or publisher probably will take care of that for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I actually do have a deadline now that you mention it. So, in you know, I outlined this new book about a year ago. And in this new book, um, the hero ends up in Iran, steals a Tomcat, and brings it back to the boat. And I just found out pretty recently that the next Top Gun movie, something similar happens. Oh. So, well, we'll pretend that they got the idea from you. Well, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that it matters. It's a pretty logical you know, yeah. assumption. Um, but yeah, I feel a certain amount of pressure to get my story out before the, the movie uh-huh. comes out. Okay, well, good luck on that. As far as the rest of the things go, though, with you, I mean, you're going to keep flying the airline gig. Why not? Yeah, good absolutely. Benefits, good compensation. Yeah. And um, <laughs> all right. So, dude, future is bright for you, and uh, I'm excited for you. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. We've been working on this interview for a while. Yeah. I'm happy to promote the book for you the best we can in any future books you write. So just let us know when those are getting close. And we're at the point in the show where normally we talk about the guest's call sign, and we really haven't identified whether Paco is your real name or your call sign or what. So what are you willing to share with us here, there, Paco? <laughs> I'll share anything. Uh, I, my, my given name is Francesco, Francesco ah. Chirici. And uh, when I was very young, a baby, some friends of my parents said, oh, Francisco, we'll call him Paco. I think it's a very common uh, diminutive for Francisco in Spanish. Okay. So I got called Paco basically from birth. Oh, okay. And everybody in my family calls me Paco. Uh, so when I got into the Navy, you know, they tried a hundred different call signs and I didn't fight it. You know, you can't fight it. The sure. more you fight, the, the, you know, the worse your call sign ends up. And for whatever reason, I just kept ending up with Paco. Every squadron I went to, even after <laughs> I crashed the F5, and th- there were so many options, yeah. it just it it never managed to evolve into an actual call sign. There so I, I feel like I'm one of the few Navy guys that never really wow. got a call sign. <laughs> well, I have a brother who had a name from birth as well that he's gone by, and I think somehow he even had it put on his driver's license, or it's it's an alias or something. But yeah. in your case, when you were showing up to a squadron and they would receive the orders on you on the message board ahead of time, yeah. it would say Francesco. Francesco, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. And so you'd show up and introduce yourself as Paco or something, right? And, yeah. And then it just kind of worked out. Well, that's good. Yeah. It, it kind of suits you. It, it, it I guess it does. I mean, it, <laughs> <laughs> it must because, uh, you know, here I am five decades later still being go. called. Awesome. Well, Paco, this has been a very enjoyable discussion, not just because of the fun we've had with the F-5, but because of your background, flying the A-6 as well, and the F-14, that's pretty cool, and then the Speed and Angels, and now Lions of the Sky. So, dude, you've really done it all, and thank you. Thank you. How many years of service? 20. 20 years. Dude, yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. On behalf of the listener, thank you for that. You're very all welcome. All right, dude. Well, I think with that then, unless you got any party shots, we can wrap this up and get out of here. No, that was great. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right. Cheers. Wow, Jello. So he got to fly the MiG-28, huh? That's uh, pretty sweet. So <laughs> That's right. Uh, what a great yeah. interview, man. I just, I love the guy's enthusiasm and just uh, that creative aspect that he has that I know I don't have as an engineer. So just really enjoyed the interview. What'd you think? Oh, I really enjoyed it. And in fact, he just flew his little 
personal airplane into a local San Diego airfield recently. And I went and met him and we've already become fast friends. I mean, I'm surprised we didn't know each other anyway, but yeah, just a great dude fits right in and certainly has a heart for telling the story. And again, Paco, thanks for coming on the show. We're glad we can help you promote your new book coming out, Lions of the Sky. And while I'm thinking about it, let me just say that we will have a link to it in the show notes as well. It will be available on our shop page. And depending on when you're listening to this, if it's in March or early April of 2019, well, then you can pre-order it. But after, I believe you said, what, April 13th, then it will be available. And then at some point, I guess it would probably be available audio as well. But yeah, really cool. I had a chance to read the book. And I think if people liked Hoser's books, they'll like Paco's book. But anyway, let's get to the big lingering question in my mind, Sunshine. He and I were not aware of the hourglass shape on the fuselage. So please tighten us up on that. Oh, yeah. And so in 30 seconds, uh, basically start back post-World War II or just at the end of World War II, 43 to 45, the Germans, while they're looking at swept wing versus W wing fighters, believe it or not, they came up with, hey, this this interesting effect of wave drag and happens in the transonic region. Now, fast forward to 90 to 52, excuse me, 1952, and there was an American engineer uh, who worked for NACA and his name was Whitcomb and he came up with this area rule, as they call it, or the transonic area rule. So it's a, it's a way to smooth out it's a way to decrease the wave drag in the transonic region, which is roughly 0.75 to 1.2 Mach. Now, the rule says that you want to smooth out the longitudinal distribution of cross sections as easily as possible. So what I mean by that is when you go from tip to tail, you want to have the increase of cross-sectional area be very slow. So uh, for me, that's still kind of weird to think about. So imagine, Jello, you're in the kitchen and you're going to chop up a carrot. You chop it up into coins, right? So you want the gradual increase of coins to be very non-dramatic or very smooth, if that makes sense. As you're chopping along from nose to tail, those are the cross-sections. You want the cross-sectional changes to be very smooth. If you don't have that, you're going to get an additional amount of wave drag, which is going to make it harder to slip through the number. So, uh, And then one more fact is the Sears hack body. So I tend to think that the ideal shape would be a cigar. And that's kind of been uh, conceptualized by the Sears, by the two engineers, Sears and Hack, and they came up with the Sears Hack body. So the cigar is kind of the traditional way to solve the area rule. But now when you think of the cross sections, the cross section is going to involve everything from the wing to the control surface to the canopies and all that stuff. Well, if you want to have a gradual increase and then decrease in cross sectional area and you have really big wings, there has to be a trade off. So you have to have a skinnier fuselage to make up for the longer wings because the cross section is gonna involve all the volume or all the area really in the wing and the fuselage itself. So if you look at the, um, the 102 Delta Dagger or the 106 Delta Dart, or you look at the F5, you'll notice that wasting is gonna pretty much show up exactly where the wing is the widest. Does that make sense? Dude, my drool cup is overflowing right now. <laughs> I just, I just gained consciousness again. Uh, <laughs> wait, yeah, I'm back. What just happened? Yeah, exactly. uh, I think so. I think that's a way of saying that because you have some aerodynamic effect on a certain spot on the wing, then you need to make the fuselage smaller in that spot because you want some sort of smoothing and effects there. So it's deliberate for that reason. Is that yeah. fair? That, fair enough, man. It's all about the cross-sectional area. You got it. Cross-sectional area. Okay. Wow. Woof. See, that's why you're on the show. I'm telling you. Okay. Well, let's see. What were we saying? Oh, yes. We were filling in some blanks on that. Uh, the other thing was he and I kind of 
debated a little bit some of the different radars. And so, yes, the F-16 does have the APG-68, which replaced the earlier APG-66. And from some research I did, some F-5 upgrades will feature the APG-69 eventually. Also, there are indeed F-5 demonstration teams, it looks like, in the Netherlands, Philippines, Switzerland, and Turkey. And also, that article we mentioned, it's called Flying with the Aggressors. We'll leave a link to that in the show notes because that's a really, really great article. In fact, I don't know if I sent it to you or not, Sunshine, but I should because it's got some great stories about the F-5s and it's got some firsthand account of when they were filming Top Gun. So, really a great little article. Very cool. Oh, hey, well, Angelo, you know what? So yeah. Paco, I know Paco admitted he's not an aero engineer, but the dude's obviously a very smart guy. So he nailed pretty much all of the aero. Just uh, one little misspeak. That is, you guys both mentioned a VN diagram, which would be velocity and normal force or okay. load factor. And when they're doing those comparison charts of capabilities, they actually use the EM diagram. So that would be oh. energy and maneuverability diagrams. Ah, kind of, EM, not VM. Not, not Victor November, but Echo Mike. You got it. Okay, gotcha. So we were talking about the right chart. We just didn't call it the right name. Spot on, spot on. Okay, well, me a couple on that. As the listeners know, we are not error-proof on this show, but we always come back and fix them. True that. And the VN diagrams are very uh, useful also for lift, for, uh, sorry, lift limits also and corner air speeds. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, as always, we have any new acronyms and terms that you might have heard on the interview available on the glossary section of our website. And if you can't find that too easily, just go to the upper right corner where there's those three little lines. Sometimes they're called the hamburger. Click on that and you can find the glossary as well as everything else on our website. Sunshine, I don't know, man. What else? I think that's really about it. Uh, Should we tell the listeners about our next deep dive? Well, what do we know about our next deep dive? This has kind of become your project, so what can you share with us? Yeah, so uh, uh, the engineer here is going to dive into the Top Gun realm, and then I'm going to introduce some BFM, or basic fighter maneuvering basics, allow myself to introduce myself. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) um, but so I'm going to go through some of the math, Jello. I'm going to lean on or leverage your expertise in the maneuvering theater or realm, let's say, to uh, put the final touches on this thing. So we're hoping to get that out sometime uh, this this month and uh, hopefully sooner than later. That sounds good. Well, this month is March of 2019. For those of you listening later, you should be able to find it hopefully on the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube page. And we need to figure out our technology, Sunshine, because it was fun doing it live last time, but we got our butts kicked a little bit. So we'll work on that. And, you know, we we and this show both are a work in progress. And the listeners have been very generous with that. They've been growing alongside us as we continue to elevate what we're doing. I totally agree. Thank you for your grace there, listeners. For sure. Well, I want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So I think that will do it for this episode, Sunshine. What do we always say? Let's get out of here. Let's do it. See you. See you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave us a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website, 
at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Hey, just real quick before you go, I realize we had some audio challenges on Sunshine's side of the interview there, but we figured it out too late. So our regrets, and I know you'll give us a little grace for that. Also, if you enjoyed Paco, there is bonus content available on our Patreon page. So head on over and check it out. <laughs> <laughs>